I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. Just a handful of chapters left in this last book of the Pentateuch that Moses wrote. And as we near his death, he here in Deuteronomy 31 gives to Joshua the commission, the call, the ordination to this young man who remained faithful when others were unfaithful along with his friend Caleb, when they brought back that report and he with Caleb said, let's go in and take the land. Joshua was the leader that Israel needed, but even despite Joshua's wisdom and courage, Israel and even Joshua would discover, even as they were told, that if you are a man, and merely a man, you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink. And we will see that played out even this evening in Deuteronomy 31. Uh, let's read together, beginning in verse 1, I'll read the entire chapter. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I, am, I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you just as the Lord has said, and the Lord will do to them as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites in their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage. For you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord... He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years... At the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God, and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them, 
and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done, in that they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. And they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day, and he taught it to the children of Israel. Then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage. For you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was. When Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there as a witness against you, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them, for I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days, Because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, hard words, bad news. For what we do not need is another leader that rises from the ranks of men. And though Moses and Joshua were means, they are means of a grace that can be purchased only through the man who, though died, was raised. And who he, with the Father, has sent the Spirit into the world so that we might know. So that we might not only live in the land given to us, of which Joshua, the greater Joshua, has come and delivered us into but so that we might live holy before the Lord there, so that we might not be cast off. And so, Lord, tonight, even now, while the word goes out, may we not fail to enter into that rest, lest we experience your wrath and perish in the way. O Lord, even now in Christ, may we hear and believe and obey. We pray in your name. Amen. We sang earlier... In 
that wonderful hymn written by Isaac Watts. I, I can't think of a better pairing of doctrine and melody. The third verse we sang, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Uh, it should not be mistaken that Isaac Watts was in every way a man who trusted in the sovereignty of God and understood God's singular work in making us new so that we might hear and believe. And so he writes, why was I made to hear? Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And unless he is made and born of the Spirit, he cannot keep the law. As Moses 120 years. He's had gray hair for many of those years already. <laughs> he came down from the mountain, grayed, shining in the presence of Almighty God. Moses had perhaps the hardest job that any man has ever had. It was not just to lead a group of people who would betray the voice of God, deny his calling to enter into the land. And so for 40 years, his ministry among Israel was not only to circumcise the newborns, but bury an entire generation that would never see the land. And he himself lived with that curse, that he would never see the land. And so at the end of many years of ministry, he not only gets the privilege of inaugurating a new man, but on the day of that inauguration, bad news. Joshua will also fail. He will get them into the land. But after a season of triumph, this generation will turn their backs on the Lord. Now we know that despite that bad news, there is the principle, the theme, the idea of the remnant. Joshua and Caleb and Moses. And there were, even in that day, true Israelites who would not break covenant but the nation as a whole, by and large, would flee. They would run. They would enter into wretched covenants with the gods of the heathens that dwelt in the land that they were sought, seeking to take over and dispossess. And so even now as we move to Deuteronomy 31, we have a reminder of the inability ultimately of the types and the shadows of the one who would one day come, who is able to deliver us, holy, just, righteous, so that we may dwell forever in that land in peace and harmony with God. Two points that I want to make this evening as it relates to the ministry of these men and the greater Moses, the greater Joshua of the one who was to come. First, two kinds of revelation. Two kinds of revelation. And then secondly, or second point, rebellion without regeneration. Rebellion without regeneration. Let's look at the first point this evening. Two kinds of revelation. I'm speaking, verses 1 through 8, God's promised conquest. This is revelation. God is saying to Israel through Moses that he will, as he has done through Moses, deliver Israel out of Egypt. He will now deliver them across the Jordan into the land of Canaan. That's the first kind of revelation. The second 
is the repeated orders. It is the law that is to be rehearsed over and over and over again among the people of the nation of Israel. And so what we have is a statement of provision and a statement of expectation. And so let's look at that first one. Under this first heading, two kinds of revelation, let's look at the promised conquest. In verses 1 through 8, Moses is writing to Israel, or he's speaking to them, and he's saying, I'm old and I'm tired. When he says, I can no longer go out and come in, what that means is once he sits down, it's going to be a minute before he can stand back up. He is going into the, well, if he was not to be taken by the Lord, uh, he would be um, prophet emeritus. And we would no longer see him at presbytery meetings. He's gotten out. Now, what will soon happen with Moses is he will be buried by the Lord. He will get to see the land, but he will not get to enter the land. Now, Moses has seen great things, but Moses will not get to step foot on that soil. Now, I guess the irony, if I can use that word of that, is this. In the passing on of Moses, he goes to an even more glorious rest. The fight continues. But this conquest is promised, and much of the book of Joshua is taken up with the fulfillment of the promise of conquest. The Battle of Jericho, maybe the most famous of all the cities sacked by Israel. And the sacking of these cities, the dispossessing of the pagan nations is a picture of what God will do through his son and through his son's church by taking for himself the nations. And not just that, the deliverance of those who wander in the wilderness, consecrated unto the Lord, who will find in Christ Rest for their weary souls, Hebrews chapter 4. And this is what the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says. Even now, when you hear the offer of rest, don't say, I'm not going. Say, let's rest. Let's go to that place of rest. For this is what the word of God proclaims. In fact, that is the great theme of all of Revelation. Now that the word of God has come, Christ in the flesh, be sure to enter the rest that he proclaims. And so when you and I go out armed with the gospel, we go into a world that is restless, as St. Augustine says. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Christ. And God is the mover. He is the provider of that rest. And so it is a gracious promise of provision, and God is lavish in his patience. He is lavish in these ways. If you go back and look at the history of Israel, is it a good history? There are a bunch of complaining whiners who when they are offered and they're there at the border, they just need to cross the Jordan and they would do so miraculously. They would have happened 40 years prior. God would have given the victory. It would not have come without cost, but the blessing and the benefit would have been amazing. Big grapes. A land flowing with milk and honey. All that they need. A land of their own. But they said no out of fear and a lack of faith. And not only is God gracious in light of Israel's past, but he's also gracious in light of Israel's future. Calls to mind 
how God calls himself our father. The insolent that earthly fathers have to put up, even in their own homes, and mothers for that matter. You labor, you labor, you teach, you correct, and it sometimes feels like all of it is for naught. Which is why I said, you can lead a horse to water, and you know the rest, but you can't make them drink. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua will not be able to do it. But the conquest is promised nonetheless. And so even here in verses 1 through 8, there's something of a taste of what is to come for that true Israel. When Christ will come into the earth, for he is able to lead us to the water and make us drink by his Holy Spirit. Second kind of revelation, repeated orders. In verses 9 through 13, Moses says or writes the law. He gives it to the priests. This is the second giving of the law to the sons of Levi, those who bore the ark. And he commands them this. All of the law that has been given to Israel every seven years, the whole nation is to come together and to read it. This sermon is a sermon for the nation. And it is a sermon for the nation that they may hear the law and as a corporate body commit to keeping it. To be convicted by it. Some hardened by it. But we know this about the word of God as it goes forth. It never returns void. It always has an effect. Sometimes the preaching of God's word moves the true saint, that, with, that one with saving faith, to new lengths of faithfulness and devotion to the Lord. But also at the same time, the word of God goes out and it is like fingers on the chalkboard to the one that has no intention to bow down and serve God. It is like screeching. It is not words of life, but words of condemnation. And so the young and old, all of the nation was to gather to hear the law. When did we stop doing this? In fact, I would argue that if you did this today, there would be many Christians that would revolt against it. And for what end? To what end? What law is more glorious than God's law? If you were king for a day, or a week, or maybe, like Moses, many generations or many decades... And someone came to you and said, we need to establish a law. What would you do? Where would you begin? What source would you go to in order to have a write a law that blesses your neighbor? We're actually in the book. The Deuteronomic law is a law for how to rightly order all societies. How to keep covenant. How to fear God. How to bless one's neighbor. And so God to Israel reminds them, you are to be people of the book. Keep the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all that flows from those Ten Commandments as an application. And so we find three kinds of law in the Old Testament. You know of these categories. You may not know them or know how to strictly divide them. But you have the moral law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That is the law that stands forever. You have the ceremonial or Levitical law 
that has not been done away with, but has been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why we celebrate the Christian Sabbath as Sunday, because it is the fulfillment of all Old Testament ceremonial law. Those are done away with, in that we no longer observe ritual sacrifices, the cleanliness laws. That's why we eat bacon and scallops. Because Christ came to Peter and said, Peter, what I call clean, don't call unclean. Because Christ, in his resurrection, has made it all clean. And then, of course, the civil law. Those laws, strictly for the nation of Israel, save even now in their use and the general equity of them. This is Westminster Confession 101, how we are to think about the law of God. Israel was baptized into the law. And this law was to strike fear and reverence. Look at verse 12. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that you may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. Now, Not all who gathered to hear the law would keep it. Now, none of us keep it perfectly. But not all who gathered to keep the law would seek to keep it carefully. The point that I'm making is this. Not all of Israel, actually Paul makes this point, was of Israel. Even in that mixed crowd, not only of those who were descendants of Abraham, but those who came with them from Egypt, and even those who found themselves in the land of Israel, sojourners, immigrants, had to hear. All were called, but not all kept. And so within these two categories of revelation, the reminder and promise of deliverance, that forms the preface to the moral law, I am the Lord your God which led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of sin and death. That provision is the foundation for what comes next. As I have graciously provided release, you now owe me your lives. You were bought. I have bought you. And I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so now, even now, you are to pay allegiance. And so then the ceremony begins. Ceremony begins here in verse 14. Moses and Joshua go to the tabernacle together. And this inauguration is met with hard news. In fact, oftentimes even when we communicate the gospel of Christ to others. I remember when I was compelled to do so as a young missionary in southwest China, and I was given what is now called the, and was called then at the time, the four spiritual laws. Are you all familiar with this? And the four spiritual laws begin with this promise. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The problem with that is this. Um... If you are not elect, it's not true. And if you are, your life may be wonderful, but it will become immensely complicated and difficult. In this way, to follow Christ is to be at odds with the world. You receive the promise of everlasting life, 
But to be friends with God is to be at enmity with the world. It's a little bit of a bait and switch. It feels a little bit like um, here are the Encyclopedias Britannica, um, and here's the price. Yes, we want some encyclopedias, but they're going to cost us 15 payments of $150. There is nothing more glorious than being part of the people of God. But as soon as the world hears, Bible-believing Christian, you're out. You're not in the cool kids club anymore. All of a sudden you realize that to be friends with God is to be enmity, at enmity with the world. And the Israelites, as they move into that land, move into a period of great conquest. But slowly, inch by inch, through intermarrying and through the embracing of pagan rituals, Israel is compromised. And it brings us to this very important point. That not only does the life of the faithful saint begin by faith, in that we are justified by faith alone, but that we are also sanctified by that same faith, saving faith. That apart from faith, we can do nothing. We can come to the law, we can hear it, we can worship with the saints, we can confess our sins every Lord's Day, but unless God grants to us true saving faith, it's just noise. It's just ritual. And that leads me to my second point, rebellion without regeneration. Where does rebellion come from? Well... You're conceived a rebel in some fashion. Even though you may be born into a covenant home, your every moral inclination is disobedience. I've used the illustration before. If you go to the restaurant and they say the plate is hot, if you're anything like me, when they say you shouldn't touch, I'm going to touch that plate. And I'm going to touch it for as long as I can. Why? 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 Because don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. Now, is this an American thing? No. This is the spirit of Adam and his wife at the tree. Don't tell me what to do. I know it's best for me. In fact, it is the spirit of the great fall, which John writes in John chapter 12, we'll get there next week, in the fall of Lucifer and the third of the angels. This rebellion comes from this spirit. I know what is best to secure what I think is good. Now, it persists in a heart that is not made new. Even a regenerate person sins. We are often led astray. And the Bible says that we are sinning or we sin when we are carried away and enticed by our own desires. It's the startling truth we don't often want to face. You sin because you want to sin. And what sanctification represents is a transformation of our spiritual affections. The mortification of sin in our flesh by Christ alluring our hearts, our affections, our souls away from that which is passing away. But it takes time. But the unregenerate person, 
There is no Holy Spirit. There is no bulwark against Satan's devices. There is nothing spiritually good in them that is able to keep them from stumbling. And they might not be holy and utterly depraved, but they are thoroughly and totally depraved. And so as God is talking to Moses and to Joshua, he is talking about those who do not receive the law by faith. They won't keep it. And they will not keep it because God is ineffectual in his calling and provision. They will not keep it earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 31 because God has not given them the ability to keep it. Why does God do this? You'll never know the answer to that question. The secret things belong to God. But there are certain things he's revealed to us. Why God chooses some and not others, I do not know. But the fact that he chooses any, and especially me, is testimony of his extraordinary mercy. Is this not what Paul says? But God showed grace to me, the chief of sinners. Paul is not speaking hyperbolically. He believes it. And in fact, at one point in Saul's life, it would have looked to us like he is one of these Israelites that had rejected the covenant. And so, what we can say, in light of Deuteronomy 31, and the whole of God's revelation is this, Christ never comes to deliver law keepers. He has only ever saved law breakers. And what Joshua could not do, Christ is able to do. Our good works, therefore, do not flow from a state of moral neutrality or human ability, but only through the work of the Spirit in us. In fact, our confession, I'm going I'm to quote the confession three times, and I'm going to do it somewhat quickly. Because I think our confession teaches us what we are to believe concerning works and faith. In Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, paragraph 3, this is what we read. Their ability, as in your ability, to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, beside the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure, Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent. That means, though it is the work of the Spirit, it is also up to us to not be negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duties unless a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is within them. How do you stir up the grace of God? You're doing it right now. Worship. Private, family, public exercises of worship. You stoke the fire. But we know this. You cannot stoke a fire that has not been lit by the Spirit. Now the work of men is therefore nothing if it is not combined with faith. What we learn here is the Lord reminds Joshua that the ultimate outcome does not belong to Joshua but the greater Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus' name is Joshua. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? It's like God wrote the whole book. 
And so without faith, no man is able to keep the law, which is more than merely doing, although I would say I would rather a man keep the law legalistically than violate the law. I would rather live among the people who don't want to kill and for the wrong reasons than for those who are willing to kill. Wouldn't you? Which is why the law is also a rule for society. I don't want to live among lawbreakers, but I really want to live among those who keep it for the right reasons. And so again, we look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, paragraph 2. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, Edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that, having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. Without faith, without faith, there is no obedience to God's commandments. Joshua cannot impart faith. Again, I say it, he can lead the horse to water. He can lead Israel over the Jordan and lead them in conquest, but try as he might. And let me tell you this, this is the lesson that every pastor, elder, parent, anyone with any spiritual authority over another human being learns very quickly. I cannot do it in my own strength. Sometimes pastors preach till they're blue in the face because they think, like Chuck Finney, Charles Finney, that Pelagian of the Second Great Awakening, if I just preach loud enough, hard enough, and long enough, and I get him down here on the... Look him up, if you have the desire tonight. Get him down here on the anxious bench, and then I really start preaching at him. If I provide the emotional context, then I can get them saved. No. You can manipulate them. But only Christ can do that work by his saving spirit. So what is God teaching Israel? Look to me for help. Has he not shown them time and time again how worthless the idols that they kept pursuing are? What is the writer of Prophet? Solomon says... Like a dog that returns to its vomit, so does a sinner return to its sin. I remember when I was a kid, somehow I got my hands on the Good News Bible, or I can't remember what the translation, and there was an illustration of a dog in his vomit. It was great. It's perfect for a boy in his, you know, younger than 10. Whoa. Of course, when I look at sin, it doesn't look like vomit, does it? It may look like vomit to everyone else, but somehow to my eyes, it looks like filet mignon. Unless I'm given eyes to see and a nose to smell how wretched and corrupt and stinky that thing is. What is God teaching Israel? That apart from a divine work of God's mercy, of giving us faith, of hearing and truly hearing, we will never be delivered into that rest. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says, and I'll end with this. Since therefore it remains that some must enter, and those to whom it was first preached, Deuteronomy 31, did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, 
That's today. And it's always today. Right now, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. If Joshua could do it, then it's done. Christ would not have had to come, but Christ had to come in order to do what? To do the thing that Joshua could not do. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that is Jesus, has also ceased from his works as God did from his. Recreation. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. God knows. And so he sends his word to you, and he says to you today, tonight, enter through me the door, the gate, and rest in me. For Christ is able to do what I cannot what your elders, deacons, parents, leaders cannot, what Joshua could not, for if they could, we would have no need for Christ. But Christ came because we need him, and he has opened the way for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God.